Well, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 914. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 7. We, did, we went a little out of order because we were doing an ordination. That's when we were ordaining John to become a deacon. And if you remember, that portion talks about the, the selection of the first deacons. And you remember the deacons, they were selected to meet the physical needs of the rapidly expanding church. Well, next couple of sermons, Lord willing, we're going to look at one of these deacons, one of these men, Stephen. And Stephen had the distinction of being the church's first martyr. He's the first person to lose his life in service to Christ. And I think it's interesting that the first martyr was not an apostle, was not a pastor, was not a teacher. It was a deacon. And this fact is not lost on any men who have served as a, as a deacon in Christ's church, that the first martyr was a deacon. Well, Steve, this week what we're going to do is we're going to look at the accusations against Stephen. We're going to look at his behavior. We're going to look at the teaching, really, that got Stephen in trouble with the powers of being. And then in future sermons, we'll look at his, uh, his teaching in detail, and we'll look at his actual martyrdom. So Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrians, and the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up, and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people, and both the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this example, this faithful example of Stephen. Father, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us. I pray your Spirit to be with me, that I will speak your words, that we will hear from you, that we will have an encounter with Jesus Christ during this time, and each one of us will be changed. If there are any here who do not know you, that will change now. And each one of us who do, does know you, we will know you better. We will love you more. We will be conformed a little bit more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, over the last several chapters in, in, the, in our study in the book of Acts, we've seen this continued escalation of the conflict between the disciples and the Jewish religious establishment. See, the apostles, they had been threatened numerous times. They had been arrested numerous times. They had been beaten. They had been ordered not to continue to speak and teach about Jesus. And with every threat, with every persecution, the resolve of the disciples grew stronger. The apostles, they actually rejoiced after they were beaten because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And the church continued to grow. It grew exponentially. And with this growth 
God had then brought structure to the young church. See, in addition to the 12 apostles, God had raised up seven deacons, men filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And they were primarily tasked with the physical care of the church. But they were also given the same charge that every member of the church was given by Jesus himself. And you remember this? We've talked about this several times. This is the, the theme verse of the book of Acts. This is the commission given to the church. And we see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And, and Jesus himself said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Stephen... Stephen, one of the seven deacons filled with the Holy Spirit, acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was fulfilling this call. He was fulfilling this, this mission to be a witness for Jesus here in Jerusalem. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look how Stephen went about testifying about Jesus and how he was opposed. So we're going to go verse by verse through this passage. And then what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on the specific thing that got Stephen in trouble that ultimately got him martyred. And we'll see how this outcome, this martyrdom, at least for some of the disciples, how this was really inevitable. And we see how being a faithful witness to Jesus actually put the disciples and the apostles and the deacons on a collision course with the worldly powers. The message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, it could not coexist in the worldview of the Jewish religious establishment. And my friends, it's no different today. The message of Christ and the, and the message of the gospel today is on a collision course with the powers and the philosophies and the desires of this fallen world. Conflict is inevitable. So what can we learn from Stephen? Well, let's start off in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So full of grace and power. Not just power, but grace and power. See, Stephen was a deacon, and deacon, Stephen was actually the epitome of, of what a deacon is. And the word deacon actually means servants. Deacons are to serve others. Stephen served others. He served the widows. He served the church. And what the deacon does is he puts others before himself. I mean, think of men who served as deacons in this church. Think of people like John Jeffries or Ben Strickland or Hal King or Jack Herndon. These men serve quietly. They serve faithfully behind the scenes, taking care of the needs of the congregation and offering sacrificing, offering, often sacrificing their own time and their own comfort to take care of the needs of others. And in their servants, the deacons, they become a conduit of grace, a conduit of grace, not only to the congregation, but to those outside the congregation as well. So our deacons, those are the ones who administer our mercy ministries to those who are in, in need. So as a, a conduit of grace, see, God's blessing and God's mercy and God's grace flows through the deacon. See, they literally become the, the hands and, and, and the feet of God. God blesses both his children and those who at least not currently are his children through the deacons. So Stephen is this conduit of God's grace and power. So it flows through him to those around him. And verse 8 tells us that Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, we don't know specifically what these wonders and signs were. So he may have been like the apostles that we read up earlier. He may have been able to heal the sick. He may have provided great acts of service, great acts of benevolence uh, to the people. 
But whatever the specific acts he was doing, these got the people's attention. And these acts that were done by Stephen attracted people to the church. But Stephen was not just physically helping people. You see, physically helping people will not bring persecution. So you'll, ne- you'll never be persecuted if you feed the hungry, if you clothe the poor. In fact, if you, if you simply do this, the world will love you. The world will admire you. But if you only do this, and, and yes, this is important, and yes, this will provide temporal good to the person, but if you only do this, you will provide absolutely no eternal good. See, eternal good comes only from the gospel, only comes from sharing the gospel. See, the physical good that the church does for the unbelieving world is, is simply an avenue, an avenue to, to allow us to share the gospel. See, the gospel. The gospel is the unique thing that we have to offer the world. See, any assistance we can provide can be also provided by others. See, physical suffering can be relieved in many different ways. And this is good, and we should always work to relieve physical suffering. But eternal suffering, as we talk about with the kids, the, 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 the being under the condemnation of God, the being in the city of destruction, this can only be prevented in one way, in one way only. And that is by the gospel of Christ. And my friends, that is what we have. That is what the church has. That is the unique thing that the church has to offer the world. Anyone can help, but the church only has the gospel. So in all the signs done by the church, the miracles, the healings, the radical generosity, the relief of the physical suffering, they all have one primary purpose. And that purpose is to get the people's attention. That purpose is to open their hearts to receive the the true grace offered by the church, the grace of the gospel which alone, which alone can impart eternal life. You see, the, the gospel is good news. In fact, it is the best news. It is the greatest news, the most amazing news that anyone can hear in this life. The gospel is the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But this good news can only be recognized. It can only be received if we first understand the bad news. See, the bad news is that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. The bad news is that we all, by nature, are children of wrath and under God's just condemnation. Ephesians 2. The bad news is that the wages of sin, which each one of us does, the wages of sin is death, eternal death. Romans 6. And my friends, the bad news will always, always be vehemently opposed by the world, vehemently opposed by the unregenerate soul. It is hated. The bad news is hated by the natural man. And it's hated because it hurts his feelings. It's hated because it damages his pride and his ego. But my friends, this is the one thing. This is the one thing that we need. We desperately need to hear if we have any hope, any hope of escaping the eternal torment. Because unless we recognize we have a problem, we will not seek a solution. See, the bad news is, 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 is hated because it confronts the sinner. It, co- it confronts the sinner with, a, with an unacceptable reality. It forces him to see that there is a God, and he's not the God. And God is sovereign. And it forces us to, to, to take our eyes off ourselves and, and, and open our eyes to something we want it close to. And that is that there is judgment, eternal judgment and destruction. It's very similar to what I, what I told to the children about the tornado shelter. You really wouldn't sit in a tornado shelter on a beautiful day because you don't think there's a problem. 
we don't think there's a problem. But if you, if you know it, you know it, then you're going, to, you're going to go there because that's your only safety. Well, the gospel is our only safety if we truly believe it. You see, Satan doesn't care if people hold out signs at baseball games with, with John 3.16. And I love John 3.16. This is the most concise statement of the gospel. The one verse, really, it's a one verse summary of the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Satan knows that if, if people actually believe the gospel, if they believe John 3.16, if they receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he's presenting the gospel, he knows that they will be saved. He knows that they, that they will be rescued from, from his evil grasp that, that is seeking. He's, he's condemned and he's going to eternal torment and eternal damnation. And he wants to drag as many souls with him. And he knows that this is the only escape. Satan knows this, but he doesn't fear John 3.16. And why? Because Satan has convinced the world that all good people go to heaven. He's convinced the world that we're all God's children. He convinced the world that, that a loving God would never judge anyone, would never send anyone to hell. That hell is some relic of a, of a superstitious past. My friends, there's a, there's a tornado, an eternal tornado bearing straight toward us, and Satan's convinced us that it's a pleasant, sunny day. And we know Stephen was proclaiming the gospel of Christ, even though this verse 8 doesn't explicitly tell us this. We know this because of the reaction, the reaction to Stephen we see in verse 9. See, if Stephen was simply serving people and, and uh, being a good deacon, he would not have incited the opposition we see in verse 9. So take a look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Cyrenes and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. In the last verse, part of verse 9, it says these men rose up and disputed with Stephen. So what's this mean? It means they debated him. It means they had arguments. They had, they had intellectual discussions with him. It wasn't, it wasn't violent at this point. It wasn't a physical opposition at least not at first, but that changes, and that, that changes quickly. And let's see how this changes. Take a look at verse 10. It says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, they were losing the debate. They were losing the debate. See, Stephen knew his scripture. Stephen knew his Old Testament history. If you, if you read chapter 7, you know Stephen knows his Bible. It's like a walking Bible commentary. But it's more than this. It's more than just his, his knowledge of Scripture. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is, is prompting Stephen in this debate. It's, it's, he's leading, the Holy Spirit is leading Stephen to the, the applicable Scripture to refute any argument that can be offered by his opponents. And this is why it is crucial for us as Christians to read Scripture, to know Scripture, to even memorize Scripture. Because Scripture is, is the raw material is the raw material that the Holy Spirit uses to direct us. Direct us not only how we should live and how we can please God, but also direct us how we are to answer those who oppose us and oppose God. And this is really the essence of biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is really having the Holy Spirit directing us, directing us to the appropriate scripture, scripture that we have to have internalized, have to have memorized, have to know, and then the correct application of that scripture in a specific circumstance. And even, even the Holy Spirit will give us illustrations to help us understand it better and help us to explain it to others. So Stephen's wisdom in this debate, it frustrates his opponents. They can't resist. They can't resist his wisdom. 
And really, it's because they can't resist God's wisdom and his, his will that's, that's revealed through his servants. So what do they do? What do they, do? They, they, they can't win the debate. They can't answer him logically. So what do they do? How do they react? Well, they resort to lies. They resort to deceptions. Take a look at verse 11. It says, Then they secretly instigated men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they went and they said, They, they, they instigated people to, to, to make up lies about him. Verse 13, the last part of verse 13, or first part of verse 13 says, And they set up false witnesses. See, what the plan here is to use lies and to use deception to get rid of to get rid of Stephen. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to drum up false charges against him, bring him before the Jewish council, get him arrested, or even get him killed. They wanted to get rid of him because they couldn't refute his wisdom. They couldn't answer the truth of his testimony. And the very fact that they, that they must turn to lies and deception, this is another indication of what we looked at last week. If you remember last week, we looked at, in their opposition to the, to the church, these, these leaders were not simply opposing men. They were not simply opposing the disciples and, and, and the, the apostles. They were actually opposing God. And this is a good reminder for us as Christians. As Christians, it is never appropriate for us to use lies and deception in propagating the gospel. Never. Now, I'm not talking about there, there may be situations of war and time where you may need to use deception. But when you're propagating the gospel, never. Because what it does is it undermines the gospel. If we truly believe that God is a God of truth, if we truly believe that he's sovereign, why would we ever use deception? Why would we ever use lies? Contrary, what we must be is when we are talking to people, we must be as clear as possible. We must not use ambiguity. We must not use equivocation. We must not use plausible deniability or any other underhanded way of this world in our service to Christ. We just simply tell the truth. We are simply witnesses of what we have seen. Let's now take a closer look at these false accusations made against Stephen. See, like the best lies, there's always a kernel of truth in them, right? Those are the best lies. If something's completely uh, false, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. But if there's some truth, that can, get you, that, that can be the hook to get you. It's kind of like a, a mouse trap. You put, you put good cheese in there to get the mouse. If, 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 there, if you just put something in there that were repellent, you would never get anything in the, in the trap. So there's, some, there's a kernel of truth here. But that truth is, is distorted. It, it, it's used to, to imply something that's completely untrue. But nonetheless, the truth behind this lie is, is really, the, the truth behind this lie, this is the source. This is the source of the hostility that's expressed against Stephen. This is really the reason why Stephen finds himself on this inevitable collision course with the powerful religious leaders. And these accusations are, are found in verses 11 through 14. So what are the accusations made against Stephen? What, what is the kernel of truth in these accusations that put, that put Stephen on this collision course with these powerful leaders? So let's look at 11 through 14. So then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribe, and they came upon and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So what are these charges? These charges first that Stephen blasphemed against Moses and against God. 
This is completely false. This, this didn't happen. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to lead him to blaspheme. So that, that is completely false. The second one is that he never ceases to speak words against this holy place. So that's talking about the, 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 uh, the temple and the law of Moses. Now, even, even the wording of this accusation shows that it must be false. It says that he never ceases. Like, that's all he does. Every time he does, he's speaking against the temple. Obviously, it's a false exaggeration. But even Stephen doesn't speak at all against the temple and the law. The last accusation is that Stephen said that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses gave to them. Now, there is some validity to this accusation. Now, although they, they obviously misunderstood the statement, they distorted the statement, but I think that this statement is really the basis of their accusation that led to the other two false accounts. See, this, this false accusation that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and, and rise it up, raise it up again, this is actually the same false accusation that's leveled against Jesus himself when he himself was on the trial, when he was before the council. In Mark chapter 14, verses 57 and 58, we read, And some stood up before and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. See, this was a false accusation that was made against our Lord. And it was, it was for the intent of, of basically justifying what they already wanted to do. And what did they want to do? They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to make an example of Jesus. But there is an element of truth in this accusation. See, John, in his gospel, he gives us the context of what Jesus actually said. And we heard Nathan read this in our gospel reading this morning from John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22 says, So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? And then verse 21 John gives us a commentary of what Jesus meant by these words. He said, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he had raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is talking about destroying the, 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 body of his, uh, the temple of his body. And this is basically what happened at the cross. This is what happened at crucifixion. So what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about his atonement, his atonement for sin. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the resurrection. He's pointing to the, the central point of redemptive history. And this is the fulfillment. The, the, the cross fulfills everything that went before. Everything in redemptive history was fulfilled on the cross. So the real issue at hand that's leading this church on this collision course with the religious leaders is that Christ's death and resurrection the final atoning sacrifice for the sin of God's people. Because of this, there is no longer a need for the temple. That's the issue. There's no longer a need for the temple. See, the temple pointed to Christ. And the need for the temple was fulfilled with Christ. There was no longer a need for a sacrificial system because Christ, Christ was the essence of the sacrificial system. He was the final sacrifice. He was the true and final one to which all the other ones were just a type, were just a shadow, all pointing to this. And we see this clearly in the, in the book of Hebrews. It tells us Jesus is a true and better Moses. Jesus is the great high priest. There's no longer a need for a high priest, a human high priest. 
There's no longer a need for a temple or, or further sacrifices because Jesus said it is finished. The sacrificial system is finished. So in one sense, the accusations against Stephen in verse 14 were true. Jesus did not destroy the temple, but what he did is he fulfilled its purpose so the temple was no longer necessary. Again, in one sense, it would seem that Jesus changed the customs that Moses delivered to the people. That is the, the ceremonial law with, with its sacrifices, with its dietary laws, with its purity laws. This was completely and forever fulfilled, fulfilled in Christ, no longer needed to be kept. See, there has always been only one way to be made right with God, and that is through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't let anyone tell you that in the Old Testament there was a different way. If they kept the law, if they kept the sacrifices, that's how they were made right. No, they were made right by the atonement of Jesus. And we see this immediately after the fall, what we call the Proto-Evangelion. This is the first gospel in, in, in uh, Genesis 3.15. Right after the fall, right after the sin, this is God pronouncing judgment on the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you, you serpent, you Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the only basis of reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the son, is the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. See, Christ is the merit of redemption. Christ is the only merit. And this merit is applied to humanity in only one way. It's applied on the basis of faith alone. And this is seen first in Genesis chapter 4. With the faith of Abel, where Abel's sacrifice was accepted, contrasted with the faithlessness of Cain, whose sacrifice was rejected. And Hebrews 11 tells us exactly what was happening. Hebrews 11 tells the reason why Abel was accepted and Cain was rejected is because Abel had faith and Cain did not. It was based on faith. And we see this formally presented as the, we see faith formally presented as the instrument of, to receive God's grace and the provision of the covenant of grace, which was given to Abraham in Genesis 15.6. It says, And he, Abraham, or Abram, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there's only one way to be reconciled with God throughout all of history, and that is by grace alone, received through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And this was even before Jesus was born, before Christmas, before Bethlehem, before the Incarnation. But this faith looked different. It looked different in the different administrations of the covenant of grace. I mean, how could you have faith in Jesus if he hasn't even been born yet? What does this faith look like? Well, during the time of Moses, the covenant of grace, which was, which was the law that was given and the sacrificial system was established, the way the saving faith was shown was by trusting this system, trusting the system that God had provided and following its provisions. Now, these provisions themselves, did not, they were not salvific. They did not contain any merit. A person could not earn their salvation by keeping the law, nor were they able to keep the law perfectly. No one could keep the law. But ultimately, what they were doing is they were following God's commands as best they could, as perfectly as they could, and trusting that God would save them. That was the faith. They were trusting that God would save them. So the Mosaic system, the ceremonial laws, the sacrifices, they were simply a pointer, a pointer to Christ, a pointer to the merit of his sacrifice. And they were needed for a time, but the time was over. Now that the perfect had come, the, the imperfect had passed away. 
And let me try to give a good illustration. Those of you who, are, who, who've been in this church for a couple of years when we first came here, remember we were living in Richard Smith's house. That's where we were when that hurricane came and we were in the hallway. And when we'd come and have Bible study, I know everyone would come in the front door, right next to the front door, I had the blueprints of the house that we're building. And everyone, I'd have to show them the house we're building. And I know you probably didn't want to see it, but I'd show you all the plans, what all the floors look like. These are the rooms and everything, and you'd see those plans. Now, I don't show people plans now. When people come to visit me, I don't show them plans. Why don't I show them plans? Because I got the house. You look at the house, you don't have to see the plans. Well, you can think of the Mosaic Law as those plans. They were needed for a time, but they're not needed anymore. The temple and the ceremonial law of Moses, they were like the blueprints for the house. They served their function, but now they were no longer needed. Now this implication, this implication that the temple was no longer needed, this came across loud and clear to these religious leaders and to the high priest. Now why do you think this would be a problem to them? Why do you think that the, the temple no longer being needed, this, and, and why do you think this would put the disciples on a collision course with these religious leaders? Because the temple was their thing. The temple was their thing. That was their livelihood. That was the base of their power. See, they were the ones who controlled the temple. And while the temple was needed by the people, they were needed by the people. See, even if they didn't believe in the system that they were administrators of, they still had power from it. You've heard the expression, probably, sacred cow. You know, a sacred cow is something that's, that's non-negotiable. It's something that I must have, something that I would fight to the death to keep. Well, the power these religious people got from their position in the temple, this was their sacred cow. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the church was a threat to this sacred cow because the temple was no longer needed. They had to go to Christ and not through these religious leaders. And hence, it put them on this collision course with the powers to be. And we know from history... Now, God in his providence did destroy the temple in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem fell to the Romans. And the temple was destroyed and never to be rebuilt. It's never been rebuilt even to this day. And you know what? It couldn't be rebuilt. If people got together and said, we want to try to build it now, they could not do it. And you know why? Because God in his providence had put the Dome of the Rock, one of the most holy sites in the false religion of Islam, on this very place where the temple was. So God was using the false religion of Islam to make sure that no one would ever rebuild this temple because it's been forever done. Now it's been superseded by the death and resurrection of his son and the gospel of grace. And my friends, it's no different today. The message of Christ and the message of the gospel, we are on a collision course with the sacred cows of our culture. And the, and the reality is conflict is inevitable. So what's one of the biggest sacred cows that we see today that, that's opposed to the gospel? So if we faithfully proclaim the gospel and the implications of the gospel, this will put us in a direct collision course with our culture and its biggest sacred cow. Well, the biggest sacred cow, the biggest idol of our culture is the idol of personal autonomy. The idol that, that I am the captain of my own destiny. That I am the master of my own faith. That I am in charge of my life. That I can do it my way. I mean, think of, 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 of any sin, any sin that plagues our culture, any sin that plagues us personal. Personal autonomy is at the heart of it. At the heart of all sin is this insatiable desire that every single one of us has to be our own God. But the reality is there is only one God. There is only one God, and guess what? I ain't him, and you ain't him. Amen. And Jesus will not tolerate any rivals. 
We must submit to him and to him alone. See, the world's fine if we teach that Jesus is one way among many. They're fine if you say, Jesus is our way. Say, I'm happy for you. I'm glad that you found Jesus. I'm glad Jesus works for you. But I, but I don't need that. They're, they're fine if we want to do that. What the world will not tolerate. It will not tolerate if we say to them, Jesus is the only way. It's not only my way, but it has to be your way only. They respond, they say, that's hateful. That's narrow-minded. And that puts us on a collision course with our culture. My friends, this will get us hated. This will get us canceled. This will get us persecuted. And if God wills, it will get us martyred, just like we saw with Stephen. So you guys are wondering, why did I come to church this morning? That's, that's real encouraging, right? I'm going to be martyred, just like Stephen. Well, thankfully, thankfully, this is not the end of the passage. This is not the end of the story. Take a look at verse 15. See, verse 15 shows us what God is doing while his opponents are, are scheming to destroy God's man. And it's very easy for us to become distressed when we, when we look at the underhanded ways the ungodly seek to hurt us, seek to, to, to destroy us, to destroy our witness because we tell them the truth. We tell them what they need to be to be saved. We get discouraged. But our God is sovereign, and he is with us. He is protecting us. He is defending us. Look at verse 15. It says, And gazing at him, at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. See, the people who recognize Stephen's face, now we, we don't know what this means, the face of an angel, was, was he shiny, bright? We don't, we don't know exactly what it was, but there was something there that they noticed. And the people who noticed it, these were not the church. These were members of the council. These were Jesus' enemies. These were Stephen's enemies. And they recognized that there was something different about him. There was something extraordinary about Stephen. And even in the midst of these false accusations, accusations they achieved their purpose would get Stephen killed. And as we know, it actually did get him killed. Right? Can you imagine if you were in this situation? Can you imagine how, how extremely stressful this was? Now, I know we all have stress in our lives. But have you ever been in a situation that you're going against the most powerful people in your culture, knowing that your life was on the line, that most likely you would die a horrible death of being stoned? That's what Stephen is facing. And Stephen's own opponents recognize a supernatural peace, a, a, a calmness that's only possible for one who enjoys a, a sweet fellowship in God's presence. See, Stephen's not concerned with the lies. He's not concerned with the threats. He's not concerned with the, the hatred shown to him. As we see at the end of chapter 7, he's not even concerned with, with stones hurling toward his head that will take away his earthly life. So how can this be? How can Stephen have this complete and total confidence in the Lord's protection? We're explicitly told. We're explicitly told the reason in the end of chapter 7. I think it's the same thing we see here. Stephen face looks, Stephen's face looks like an angel because Stephen is actually beholding the face of Christ. He is beholding Christ's face at this moment. And this fact is extremely comforting, I think. Extremely comforting to us when we face opposition and the possibility of trial and the possibility of persecution and even the possibility of martyrdom. We not only look to Jesus for protection, but we actually look at him. We look at his face. And look at the description of, of, of his character and grace that's found in Scripture. We look at his words. We look at his promises given to us, and they will give us comfort. As the words of the hymn tell us, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. These things will grow strangely dim. Even martyrdom will grow strangely dim. And you may have heard this story before. Bonnie may have told you about her brother, Daryl. Her brother was, was dying of cancer. And she was with him when he died. And he was, I mean, his body was wasting away. He, he only had a few, couldn't even speak. And it was about 6 o'clock in the morning. He sits up straight in his bed. And Bonnie was on the bottom of the bed and looking at him. And she sees him looking beyond him. He couldn't even speak at this point. And Bonnie says, do you see heaven? He just smiles and says, yes. says, you see Jesus? He smiles and says, yes. And he falls and he dies. He didn't worry about anything. He didn't worry about leaving his family, leaving. He was a very successful man, had a lot of money. He wouldn't worry about losing all his money. Didn't worry about cancer eating up his body. He was looking at Jesus. And nothing else mattered to him. And that's what we saw with, that's what we saw with Stephen. See, Scripture promises us that no matter what we experience, if we are in Christ, he is with us in the midst of the most horrible trial. He is with us. He is using the trial. It's using for us good. And there's nothing, there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We confess these words before, but I, want to, I just want to read these words from Romans chapter 8, because this is, this is the reality for every Christian. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's talking about in past tense. It's already happened. We, don't, we haven't experienced it yet, but we are already as, as good as if we're in heaven itself. We are glorified. And then he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised who is the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, this was true for Stephen. This is true for every single one of us who is in Christ. And we are called to faithfully proclaim the gospel. My friends, this will, not might, this will put us on a collision course with the unbelieving world. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world. This is our hope. This is our confidence. Really, in any situation we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reality. The reality of who Christ is. And Lord, I pray that you will allow us to, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. To face him. To see him. To look to him when we are in trouble. When we are in distress. And as the, as the hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.